So thank you again for taking time. I know working from home is different and um, I appreciate that you're willing to share your story. Well, thank you. So where would you like to start? Um, you know, we could probably start at the beginning or I don't know if you want to talk about like things we learned from it or um, you're, you're in charge of this, so you tell me. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you again. I, I remember meeting uh, you at first when I was participating in the Lilly program in Harrisburg. Mm -hmm. So oh, yeah. that's where I think our common story begins. Obviously, you had a story before that, and I did as well, but that's where I first crossed paths with you. And um, that right. was several years ago, maybe 2010-ish. That could very well be. You know, Lily classes have come and gone over the years, and, like, one kind of blends into the other. Mm-hmm. So you were with NAFA back then? Yes. Yes, I was with NAFA Pennsylvania. I was there. My title was communications director, but I really wore a lot of hats in the organization. So was that before or after your experience with care, caregiving and care coordinating? Probably at the tail end of it. The tail end of it. And so that was um, uh, obviously not not at all apparent uh, to me and probably to anyone else other than those maybe in your inner circle. But you obviously had to go to work and uh, perform in that role while everything uh, else yes. was going on simultaneously. Yes. And, you know, it was a challenge. I was lucky I had an employer who was really understanding. Um, so that really went a long way. That's important because some don't have the uh, support uh, at work or, or may not even communicate with people because they're afraid to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. And, and really, I think I, I'm, I'm looking back and I think we really spent on and off caregiving almost a decade because it started in 2001 with my my father-in-law and ended with my father's death in 2010. So, so you really, told me I mean, looking, your family's grown now, but back then you had children in the household still? Yeah, I had a son who, um, who was a teenager. He was 14 when my father-in-law moved in with us. So he was in high school. And, and you're working outside the home? Mm-hmm, and, and my husband and, as well. And, and caregiving for a father-in-law who's living with you at that time? Um, yes. You know, in the beginning, you know, I really think that everyone's caregiving story starts with getting an unexpected phone call. And, and then things kind of go from there. And in our situation, it was in 2001, my father-in-law who was, you know, he's independent. He had some health issues, but he was living by himself about 60 miles from us. We get that phone call and, you know, that he's not well. Find out that he fell. My husband went up to take care of him. Um, he ended up in the hospital. Um, from there went to rehab, needed surgery, back to the hospital, from there back to rehab. So that's about two months of him shuttling back and forth between a hospital and a rehab setting. And we talked about it here and decided that we really didn't want him to go back home and live alone anymore that we would we had an extra bedroom and an extra bathroom we would fix them up and have him move in with us 
So that's what happened. So he was going to live alone, if not not for coming to live with you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it really wouldn't have been a safe environment for him. He had some mobility issues and, you know, just was falling quite a bit. So he, he, needed, he needed to have somebody to keep an eye on him. For sure. How old was he then? Um, he would have been 75. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, my mother, who lived in the other end of the state, 125 miles away, was nearing the end of a five-year fight with ovarian cancer Oof. and really wasn't expected to live very long. Um, and so my dad was her primary caregiver, and she did have a really good support system in her hometown. There were friends and relatives who helped. But, you know, I really wasn't able to go out and help as much as I would have liked because I had responsibilities at home. And really about the last couple months of her life is when my sister and I would go out there and take turns staying and helping my dad for extended periods of time until she passed away. And she passed away in March of 2002. That's emotionally draining, too. It was. It was hard. In addition to your um, travel and relationships with your sister and with your own yeah. family and your household. Yeah, we were really lucky. Everybody pulled together. So, I mean, there are a lot of families that don't do that, but we were able to do it. So I feel very proud that we were able to, to come together like that. Yeah, I but, think... you know, in the, meantime, in the meantime, my father-in-law's health was steadily going downhill. Um, and then on top of everything else, I had, had a great aunt who lived in the town next to us, and she was um, showing some signs of dementia. Again, she was also somebody who um, was independent, had lived alone for many years. Um, my mother, she had asked my mother some years ago if she would be her power of attorney and her executor, but my mother knew that um, my aunt would probably outlive her. Mm-hmm. So she had said to me, you're the one who lives the closest. And the two of you are pretty close. Why don't you talk to her and go to an attorney and get her affairs taken care of? So she was agreeable, and we did this. And I'm so glad that we did it when when we did, because like a month after that happened, again, we get a phone call that's unexpected. It's Mm -hmm. late at night. It's a police officer who says that he has found my aunt wandering along the side of the road disoriented and lost. She got in the car to go grocery shopping that afternoon. And we don't know what happened to her, but instead of going back to her house in Harrisburg, she was wandering around Lancaster County um, and ended up hospitalized. Um, and she was fine, but she just had a, an episode, I guess, where she became very disoriented. Mm-hmm. And um, after that, she couldn't drive anymore. So now we have to make arrangements to make sure she has food and what she needs and, you know, that she can get out of the house. And so I took over her grocery shopping and... Um, uh, one of her friends took over, um, driving her back and forth to church every Sunday, and another friend would take her to, you know, go to the mall and get her hair done and, you know, get her out of the house. And I have a, a cousin who lives close by, and she came in once every Monday, would stop in and see her, and I took would take her to the doctor. And so we were kind of in a holding pattern there for a while. You know, she was okay to live in her own home but she couldn't drive anymore so now I'm taking care of another person um, my father-in-law was um, 
still going downhill, still falling a lot. Um, had to go to a nursing home, spent a month in a nursing home and passed away. Um, so um, then what happened was, you know, my aunt still kind of in a holding pattern for a while, but then in the spring of 2004, we realized that um, she was writing big checks to somebody who was promising to fix her house and didn't do it. And we got the police involved and they did arrest the person who did it and he made restitution. Wow. Um, so I'm really glad that, that we were able to do that. Wow. Um, so he was taking really money to... from her but not doing the work and then was arrested for it. Mm-hmm. Wow. And she wasn't the only one he was doing it to. Oh, good thing you were so, looking out um, for her. Actually, my cousin was the one who, d who discovered this was going on and she alerted me. I mean, it was really scary. I mean, I took her checkbook from her because mm -hmm. I'd already had um, the authority from the bank to write checks on her account. Yeah. But I took her checkbook from her and notified her bank that if she withdrew large sums of money, to, I needed to be notified. And this was on a, like a Wednesday or a Thursday. On Saturday morning, the bank called and said, you need to call the police right away. Your aunt was here. And I said, how could my aunt be there when she can't drive? well she wasn't here alone there were two men who drove her here in a pickup truck no oh, geez so they came back and wanted money and when she said she had no checkbook they offered to drive her to the bank so i went straight to the police at that point and they came out to her house interviewed her told me that i should go to our area agency on aging and report her as a senior in danger and they came out the next day and sat down with her and interviewed her and suggested to me that she really was not safe in her own home anymore. She needed to get out. So um, I made arrangements with an assisted living facility that, that really took very good care of her, but of course she didn't want to go. Um, and at that point they wouldn't take her um, if she was unwilling to go. So I ended up having to get her declared mentally incompetent, which was really a difficult thing to do. Um, and at that point, um, when, when you have power of attorney over someone who's declared mentally incompetent, it gives you a lot of power to do things that they don't want to do. Yeah. And um, you, you have to use that wisely. You can't use it to take advantage of the person that she really was not safe in her own home anymore. So she had to go. Um, and it was really gut-wrenching for her. She had to leave behind the house that she'd lived in for 50 years and, and go to this assisted living place, which was really very nice. And she did make friends there, but she wasn't happy. Right. And eventually she had a stroke, um, had to go to a skilled nursing facility, and passed away. Um, so, you know, we had a few, few years of peace after that, but... Um, my dad was diagnosed with congestive heart failure, and after a couple of years, he really started to go downhill. Again, he was living independently in his own house. My sister and I were taking turns going out and staying with him for extended periods of time and helping him, and, and he passed away in July of 2010. So, I mean, it was, it, was, it was a long road, but we did get some breaks in between, and I, I really feel like... Uh, we, we tried our best to do the right thing. Um, maybe we didn't do things perfectly. Um, certainly in the case of my aunt, I had a lot of people in the family who um, were really free about sharing their opinions about what should and should not be done on her behalf. 
I had to deal with that. Um, right. I will say with my parents, um, my sister and I really were able to come together and just really focus on, on what they need and, and not deal with any of the extraneous stuff that siblings deal with. Right. And, uh, and, and I will say for my father-in-law, I think it was really a huge adjustment for him. You know, nobody ever says, yippee, my dream has finally come true. I get to leave home and go move in with my kid. Right. And nobody says that. Right. So it, it was really a huge adjustment for him. And um, I think on one level he realized that there were people who were looking out for him and making sure that he had food and and care and, you know, clean house to live in and all that stuff we took care of for him. But on the other hand, you know, he really missed his old life. Of course. Yeah, so, I mean, I really, you know, I really feel for him there. I have... <laughs> Mom in 2002, great aunt in 2004, your dad's congestive heart failure and your father-in-law's death around 2010. Did I get that right? No, my father-in-law passed away in January of 2003, and my uh-huh. dad passed away in 2010. Father-in-law's 2003. So you had uh-huh. mom, father-in-law, great aunt, back to back to back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Good. it was. It's like... You really get to the point you're afraid to answer the phone because you know it's going to be bad news about somebody. Uh, that's that's too much for many people to 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 deal with. I imagine at, at times as your son's growing up, um, there had to be some compromises in where where you could be physically and emotionally available for all the different people that needed your time and attention. Um, yeah, I think he really kind of bore the brunt of it because we just were not able to pack up and go places like we used to and things like that. He had to take on some responsibilities at home that mm-hmm. um, he might not have had to do otherwise. I think he was a real trooper, though. Yeah. So I think you're right. Uh, stories begin with either a phone call or somehow a announcement that something happened, something un- mm-hmm. unexpected happened, and... What that is and when that happens is different for each of us, but um, the ripple effect is how it impacts family, friends, and coworkers, and so on. Is is emotional and sometimes also financial. Mm-hmm. And I think sharing stories like this help people to begin to be empathetic to you and your journey through all of these experiences and at the same time kind of test drive their own emotions of how they would feel if it was mm-hmm. their their mom, uh, their dad, their father-in-law, uh, great aunt. Um, at the end of it all, we hope to look back and have no regrets. Um, oh, that's true. Sometimes we have the opportunity to say everything that needs to be said and Sometimes we don't. Uh, I think that's uh, something people are generally aware of and sometimes have good intentions, but often we run out of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think in our case, because it was really kind of a long goodbye, that we really had a chance to say what, what needed to be said. Yeah. In some ways, that's a blessing because you got got the opportunity to do those things where some... Uh, other people do not. Mm-hmm, that's true. Did 
did you need to take time away from work during that two? Um, oh, I used oh, my two. vacation time. You know, they were pretty mm-hmm. generous with paid time off. Yeah. And so that's really where my paid time off went. Hmm. I do what you need to do when you need to do it, I guess, right? It's, mm-hmm. you know, people dream yeah. of uh, uh, someplace, you know, different for vacation time, but... I guess when you need to do that, uh, you do anything and everything you can for the people that we love the most. Yeah, because, you, I'm, you know, I think the thing that kept me going was just knowing that it was just going to be a temporary situation. It's not going to last forever. Right. Of course. And with your work experience through NAFA and now Insurance News, um, how, how do you feel that your experiences were relate your personal experiences would relate to your professional work? Um, I think, um, well, the one thing I tell people is that we could not go out and buy long-term care insurance quickly enough because I saw how that could have made a difference in somebody else's life. And I think it really taught me, you know, just on a non-financial level, taught me that um, the health decisions you make in your 40s are really going to influence the quality of life you have in your 70s. Mm-hmm. That's that's somewhat profound to think about, but you're right. Yeah, you know, things like don't smoke, um, you know, watch watch your weight, watch what you eat, exercise. I think that really is going to affect the quality of life you have when you get older. It's hard to argue with that. Um as you're talking about, you couldn't go out and get long-term care insurance quickly enough. I'm, I'm guessing that you want other people to be able to coordinate your care without having to be hands-on caregivers. Is that part of the, the motivation there? Oh, yeah. Plus, you know, I, I just think that um, it, it buys you some options. And, and when you get older and your health is bad, you need options. Sounds like in, in my aunt's case, I saw how quickly her money um, went down, mm. and you know, thank goodness she she had she had money, and had a house that was worth something that we ended up selling. So you know that enabled her to to pay for care. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't have that, and and the cost of care can really drain your savings really fast. No doubt about it. Um... Yeah, yeah. Using home equity is often a last resort for many people, and it sounds like that's her story. Is used some of the money from selling her home when she had to go to the uh, assisted living. Mm-hmm. She yeah. wasn't going to be returning to the house, right? And we really didn't want to maintain it. You know, keeping that house was costing money as well. That was money that could go toward her care. So, it's a great um, selling point. it was really the the best thing to do. So tell me about your your role as the uh, power of attorney. You said that when someone is um, declared mentally incompetent, um, I forget the exact words you used, but that's not an easy process. Um, I, I imagine you meant emotionally, but um, what's the if you could talk through that process and your your role in it as her power of attorney during that time? Well, you know, the power of attorney was set up through her attorney. You know, mm-hmm. he drew up the legal papers and all of that when. When, when she still had the mental capacity to consent. And it basically spells out things that I can do on her behalf, like pay bills, um, you know, handle her finances, uh, make medical decisions, because she had a, a very detailed advanced directive. 
um, which was very helpful. Um, so, you know, do things like that. Um, I could sell her property for her, um, you know, things like that. But as far as the being declared mentally incompetent, I had to go to her physician and have him sign the paperwork for that. And he was very reluctant to do it. Uh -huh. He just kept telling me that this is a matter for families to decide, and he was going to stay out of it. And the way I got him to sign the papers was I went to his office in the middle of the afternoon and basically pitched a fit in front of everyone in the waiting room and said that I was not leaving until he signed them, that my aunt was in danger, she needed to get out of her house, and she needed to get out of it today. So I think he signed the papers just to get rid of me. <laughs> so... When you say it wasn't an easy process, sometimes it takes extreme measures like that to, to get something done. So let me back up a little bit. When, the, when uh, your great aunt's attorney drafted the paper, she was competent at the time when she um, did her legal work with her attorney, like her directive, yeah. and then later was yeah. declared incompetent after you were assigned as power of attorney. Mm -hmm. um, quick sidebar, my own parents went through this process of uh, making my sister and I... Uh, power of attorney and the bank would not uh, sign the paper that said that uh, at that moment they were of sound mind but told them that they needed someone else to witness the document and they ended up um, interesting yeah so my dad asked me you know is that normal um, I think it was a liability issue but he said how can the, the bank officer not determine that I'm mentally competent but my neighbor can I don't know. I don't have the answers to that, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. And based on his experience, um, you know, when you have to have someone sign as a witness that attests to your being of sound mind at that moment, um, the bank officer said he was not authorized to do that, and someone else would have to do it. Is it someone else, such as? Mm -hmm. Is it someone else, such as a family friend or neighbor? And so, mm -hmm. that's how that story played out. And um, I thought for our conversation today that some others might find that to be noteworthy but emotionally yeah, that's that it's it's remarkable to have to uh, take extreme measures like going to the physician's office in the day and um, essentially demanding uh, attention because mm -hmm. I can see where someone might be reluctant to make an important decision that uh, could be perceived differently by someone else um, mm -hmm. I, know. I was told that really that, that if he was not going to, to do this, the next step would be to have um, an attorney go to court and file for, file yeah. for, guardian, well, file for guardianship, file yeah. for me to get legal guardianship over her, mm -hmm. which takes time. It's really, I've been told, it's really a difficult process. It's really kind of a humiliating process for the person involved. Um, and you hear horror stories about guardianship being abused. Mm -hmm. So courts are really reluctant to grant it unless it's a very extreme case. And it's not something that happens in a day. So you know, I'm just really glad that we were spared from that. Of course. I know of an attorney that met with uh, the father of one of my clients. She was asking him to do the work uh, that had not been done while he was mentally competent. The attorney left and said that he was not convinced that the individual was incompetent. And she said he has good days and bad days. Sometimes he can fool you. But if you come back 
spend a little bit of time with them, you'll, you'll see what I mean. And that's exactly mm-hmm. how that played out. So mm-hmm. you can see how a professional like a physician or an attorney might have some hesitation sometimes because if, if they happen to catch the person on a good day, they may not have the same experience that the family member has had. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, that can be delicate. Yeah, that, that can be delicate. Yeah. Um, I don't know that you told me how old was your aunt when she went through this experience? Um, all of this went down shortly after her 90th birthday. And she lived to be 93. Wow. Lived to be 93. I think you told me earlier your father-in-law was 75 or so. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so these things can happen, obviously, at any age, but... 70s to 90s seems to be the window when it's most common, right? I would think, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when we're talking with people about their dreams and ambitions and saving for retirement, what they want to do when they're done with work, um, you know, the the caregiving role is typically not in the the short list of uh, what they're what they're thinking about at the time, but often becomes what happens as our, our parents are getting older and they, they need us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know of some circumstances where someone might have wanted to work to full retirement age for Social Security purposes, but because of an illness for mom, decided to retire and start drawing on Social Security uh, at age 62, right? So, you know, sometimes we we map out the plan as it exists on paper, but the reality is often very different than what was intended originally. And so that's just a fact of life that sometimes you get a curveball. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Do you see it, um, you see it on both sides, both in every day as a, you know, regular citizen and then professionally from your exposure to the insurance world and, not everyone well, knows. Yeah, because a lot, a lot of what we write about has to do with, with that very topic. Of course. And I think oftentimes it's people that are in and around the, the industry that are the, the readers and followers. And I worry about those that don't know, as you said earlier, to, to rush out and get long-term care insurance, for example. And I wonder what people would do if they didn't know what else to do or where they might go. Uh, to get advice and guidance. You know, I, I just feel really lucky because I was exposed to a lot of people in in the insurance and financial services profession. So, you know, I, I knew what I didn't know, and I, I knew where to get, get advice. Um, when I was uh, working at NAFA, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and we used to do a little bi-monthly magazine that went to our members, and I had a column in it and wrote a column about the whole power of attorney process and telling our members, you know, when you're working with clients, you need to ask them, who's going to look out for you when you can't look out for yourself? And and do you have somebody designated to do that? And have you taken care of all the legal paperwork that needs to be done so that they can act on your behalf if necessary? It's awesome. And thank you for being an advocate for this. Thank you for sharing your story. Uh, before we started to record oh, today, it was 
saying that I believe so many people have their own versions of this type of story and eventually something happens to someone that we care about or happens to, to, to us and impacts other people that we care about. And so that goes mm -hmm. in both directions. Uh, I think just general awareness and, and empathy that people are going through things that we might not always know about, such as when I first met mm -hmm. you through uh, NAFA and the Lilly program, I didn't know that you were at the tail end of uh, the experience with your father-in-law, for example. And how would you know? It's just typically something that people won't talk with everyone about, only the, you know, those who are closest in their inner circle. But um, mm -hmm. I think a message of trying to be empathetic to people who have their own set of challenges and relationships um, and general, general encouragement to, to say, you know, you're not alone and there is a community of people that um, have shared experiences, although somewhat different in their own, in, in their own world. Um, there's a sense of comfort knowing that this isn't, you know, just a unique thing to one person. And I hope that someone who's listening to this recording at a later time finds that, you know, they get some value out of knowing, you know, what it is to have a, a health directive, a power of attorney, um, that they start to look into long-term care insurance and start to think about who are the people that uh, I care about and how can I do what needs to be done for them and how can I set up my life in a way that um, if something happens to me that uh, it would be minimally disruptive to the people that I care about so that we can spend our time together, you know, doing the things we want to do and minimizing some of the stuff that would be more disruptive, um, mm -hmm. more emotionally devastating. And of course, there's the financial aspect of trying to protect what we can and use our resources prudently. Right. So yeah. before, before we wrap up, is there anything I totally else? I agree with what you've said. Yeah, anything else that comes to mind that you would want to share before we wrap up today? No, I think we've pretty much covered everything. I want to thank you. Oh, thank you. You've been generous with your time and uh, uh, very appreciative. Um, you've been through a lot over the years and have a different perspective on things perhaps than, than many others do right now. And I think that um, by sharing that information, it may be um, uh, information that maybe people feel comfortable knowing about that could very well be in their future as it, you know, as it plays out, depending on what happens in their own life. Um, mm -hmm. And so some resources are available for the asking. Um, most people have the internet within reach, uh, within the smartphones or, or laptops these days, and um, can easily start to type in some of the keywords that we've talked about here today and start to find some of the resources while remaining um, private and confidential early on and hopefully can find uh, someone who's in the industry that they know and trust and would start to um, talk with about their circumstances and get some direction of what steps they need to take uh, in order to do what needs to be done for themselves and for the people that they love most. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Susan, thank you so much. I, um, I very much appreciate the time that you took to share your story today. And, uh, oh, thank you. Um, give us a link to the podcast when it's ready. Of course I will. And, and good luck with you in this time of confinement. <laughs> right. 
We're doing more things like this, more Zoom calls and video calls, telephone calls, and reaching out to everyone and just checking in to say, are, are you okay? And do you need anything? Um, if nothing else, it's just for emotional support because, you know, it's stressful. You know, there's people who are anxious about, you know, things shutting down and uh, you know, life as we know it, you know, being suddenly changed, at least temporarily. Right. And uh, I know some people are worried about, you know, is their job secure? And uh, it's, it's a stressful time for a lot of people. But working from home has, uh, has its challenges and being isolated is uh, uncomfortable, to say the least. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll get through it. It's going to be, it's going to be good. We, we will. In some ways, it's uh, relationship strengthening if, if we do it right. 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 Is, is your daughter home from college now? She is. They went to a uh, online for the for the rest of the semester. So it would have been their spring break anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, they said they were going to extend the spring break through April, and then uh, the second round shortly thereafter said, "No, we're not coming back at all. Spend the rest of the semester online." And um, in some ways, that's disappointing. You know, she's a lacrosse player with the women's team and uh was looking forward to the season and it, it got cut short oh so. yeah yeah my youngest niece is in college in north carolina mm-hmm. this was her study abroad semester she's in morocco and she's trying to get home there are oh, like three thousand no. americans in morocco who are not allowed to come back to this country Oh no! and so they're really trying to do whatever they can to be allowed to come back now. I can't imagine how stressful that must be. Well, my, my sister said that um, their college has arranged for them to have secure housing for however long it takes for them to stay in that country. Um, so, so that's okay. Um, there is coronavirus in Morocco, which is probably one of the reasons why they can't come back to this country right now. Mm-hmm. But... Um, she says that where she is, she feels safe, and they're not going out. And she says it's really not safe for them to be out. Um, and, you know, they're just kind of sticking together and hoping the day comes that they're going to be allowed to come home. Making the most of it. Wow. Uh, I hope and pray that uh, they're safe and get to come home and... I can't imagine um, being a parent with a child that's not allowed to return. Uh, they're getting a more than they bargained for with a, with that education. Yeah, I don't think my sister was too crazy about the idea of her going to Morocco in the first place. But, right. But uh, you know, she she definitely she feels bad that this is getting this experience is going to be cut short for her. But she really would feel a lot better if she was back in the states. Yeah, and she certainly won't forget it. It's remarkable to have yeah, that that's experience. For sure. Yeah. So, uh, I'm sure things will work out eventually. Of course. Susan, thanks yeah. again for uh, taking the time. Thank you. To do this, we'll post the link and and uh, and share it shortly. Okay. And and this means a lot. So thanks thanks again for all you do to share your story and to advocate for, you know, sharing the information with others who can benefit from it. Okay.